Cool, cool, cool. So our passage tonight is going to be 2 Timothy, all of chapter 3. Okay, so 2 Timothy, all of chapter 3. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for another Sunday when we can join together and 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 sing your praises and, and hear your word, Lord. And, and, and we're just thankful that you've provided your word. Lord, we long to hear from you. We long to, to know you. We know that your word is, is useful. God, it's not just meant to sit here, but it's useful and, and it's able to equip us for good works. Lord, and I pray that as we approach your word, that we would just bow our hearts to you and that through the reading and understanding and applying of your word tonight, that you would equip us for, for many good works that would bring you glory. We love you, Lord. We just ask for your guidance and that uh, you would lead us all by your word. In your son's name we ask this. Amen. Cool. So 2 Timothy chapter 3. Tonight's message is titled, Four Reasons Why We Need God's Word. Okay? So, the world is always changing, right? Cultures are always changing and shifting. And not only is it changing, but generation after generation, you could say spiritually, things just kind of keep getting worse. And along with the culture, our culture, many cultures before us changing, something that you can kind of see is that the church will often try to kind of change with the culture. The church will often try to change how they do things to try to minister to the new generation. It's like a big game of, of cat and mouse. The church is always trying to catch up. And something that I heard Alexa say earlier was that um, when we as a church do that, we're never really going to catch up. We're always chasing. We're always one step behind. But biblically, the church is not called to be changing along with the culture in order to minister to the culture. The church is called to continue in what we have in the gospel, to maintain biblical preaching, to maintain godly living. Right? So ministry isn't about catching up to whatever trends are, are popular and, and appealing to our culture, but it's about continuing generation after generation in sound gospel teaching and in, in Christ-centered lifestyles and living. In this chapter tonight, we're going to see Paul give an exhortation, a calling to Timothy to continue in what he has learned and become convinced of. That which Timothy has learned and become convinced of is the truth that Christ came to die uh, to save sinners. That's the truth, that Jesus came to die for the sins of many and rose again. And anybody that puts their faith in him will have eternal life. That's the truth that Timothy has known. And Paul is urging him to continue in that. But at the foundation of that urging is the truth of what Scripture is, which is breathed out by God, wholly inspired by God. It is God's word. It was written by people, but God, by his Holy Spirit, through those people, inspired them to write it. So this is God's word. The Bible is God's word. And this passage tonight we'll see makes that clear that the Bible is God's word. And it's not just God's word uh, as like a novelty. Like, look, I have God's word. Isn't that cool? It's in my house, but it just kind of sits there on a display. But it's useful. It's meant to be used and utilized. And it's able to equip us, God's servants, 
for good works. So our main idea tonight is that we would understand the essentiality of utilizing God's word for us, his church. And my hope and my goal is that all of us would gain a deeper understanding of why God's word is essential for us, his church. So as I said, the the title was Four Reasons Why We Need God's Word. And I have four reasons. Spoiler. So in this passage, we're going to see the way that Paul outlines it is the church needs God's word to endure terrible times, to follow in the footsteps of faithful believers, to be wise unto salvation, and to be equipped for Christ-centered living. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected, but they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So our first point, we need God's word because of terrible times. Verse one says this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. The last days, I think when we hear that term last days, we tend to think of like revelation, right? The days when Jesus will come back, when the Antichrist shows himself. Um, But biblically speaking, that's not necessarily what the last days means. The last days is actually referring to now and even back when Jesus was around. So from the time that Jesus established a new covenant to the grafting in of the Gentiles, all the way here we are nearly 2,000 years later, that is biblically what is the last days. In Acts 2.17 it says, In the last days God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And all of those things named happened later on in the book of Acts, showing that even in the book of Acts, that was what was defined as the last days. 
Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So in the last days, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his own son. Right? So when it says last days, it's not talking about, it's not Paul telling Timothy, hey, you know, a long time from now, after you're dead, um, and Jesus comes back, this is what's going to happen. They're going to be terrible times. Saying no, even now, we're in the last days. We're living through them. There will be terrible times. And that term terrible times uh, could be translated in a few different ways. Terrible could be translated as violent, difficult, dangerous, perilous. And times could be translated as times or even seasons. Right? So it's like different periods that, uh, that we're living through, which are dangerous, which are perilous for the church. And Paul kind of gives some insight as to why times are so terrible. And that's in verses two to five. It says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. The reason why times are so terrible back then and now is because of sin. It's because of sinful men who love pleasure and hate the Lord. Terrible times, dangerous seasons are characterized by sinful men. It's not just that horrible things just happen sometimes. It's that bad things happen when people put themselves above God, when, when people's main priority is to love themselves and to please their flesh rather than loving God. And a, a small kind of side note here is we can see that in our times today. I think a lot of people, even Christians nowadays, have kind of a mindset that if only this happens, uh, times will get better. We'll be better off. We'll be Everything will be fixed. We'll good, such as if this person gets elected into office, things will get so much better. We Everything will be fixed. Everything that's wrong will be fixed. Everything that's wrong will, will, will be fixed if my favorite team wins the Super Bowl. You know, things like that. But the the problem with the world, the problem with our country, our community, whatever, is not who's in office or who won the Super Bowl or anything. The problem is sin. Okay, so we, I, I think like we need to understand that. That what brings about terrible times is when people are sinful men, not lovers of God. And by the way, in verse 13, it talks about how things will go from bad to worse. It's not just that things are going to stay the same, but things are getting even worse all the time. Verse 6 through 9, we see who these people are. I'm sorry, previously we saw who these people are. In verse 6 through 9, we see their conduct. It says, They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, 
So, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. I will give extra points to anyone who can tell me who Janice and John Bruce are. <laughs> and not Michael. Michael already knows. For real, so does, does anybody here know who Janice and John Bruce are? I didn't. No. Quite the opposite, actually. Yes. They did oppose Moses. You got that. Way to pay attention. Um, so Janice and Jambres are the magicians which opposed Moses. You remember Moses went to Pharaoh and, and he told Pharaoh, hey, God sent me to tell you to let my people go. And God told Moses, I'm going to give you a sign to give before Pharaoh so he knows that he's dealing with God and not just some dude who says he's dealing with God, right? So what Pharaoh did, I'm sorry, what Moses did was he threw down his staff and it turned into a snake. And Pharaoh was supposed to be like, oh, like, whoa, how did you do that? You must have God on your side. Now I'm scared and I'll listen to you. But what Pharaoh did was he called in magicians and sorcerers who did the exact same thing. And in the book of Exodus, the reason why I didn't know is in the book of Exodus, they're never named. This is the only place in the Bible where Janus and Jambres are named. And the reason why uh, we know it's Janus and Jambres is, well, because just even since that time in ancient Jewish history, traditionally, those have been the names given to the, uh, the magician. So it's kind of through tradition and history that we know that this is referring to those magicians. But what happened was those two magicians opposed Moses and they threw their staffs on the ground and they turned into snakes. But what happened was uh, Moses' staff ate the snakes of the, that the magicians threw down. So they opposed Moses. They opposed Moses in order, in the hopes that they could keep God's people chained up, right? That they could keep God's people from going free. And in the end, when Moses' snake ate theirs, they looked like a bunch of fools. And in the same way, the people that we were just talking about, these sinful people, these people even, it says, that could identify as Christians, having a form of godliness but denying its power, saying they're Christians, but they don't live like it, and they deny Christ with their works. These are the type of people who prey on the weak. These are the type of people who try to keep other people chained up, right? But just as Janice and John were supposed Moses, and they turned out to look like fools in the end, so also those who were to oppose Timothy, as Paul previously said in this book, that Timothy would be opposed, would look like fools in the end. So just like in this time, in which Paul is warning Timothy, we, the church, are in dangerous times, okay? And we need the word of God to persevere through them. Historically, the church has faced all kinds of false teaching. Back in this time, in biblical times, a big thing that the apostles always had to refute was Gnosticism. There were all kinds of false teachings about um, what 
about that. Like you had to get circumcised to be a Christian. There are all kinds of false teachings that uh, great. You only receive grace if you work for it. And those things are even around today, but they're big things that the apostles had to deal with for nearly a thousand years. The church had to deal with sacramentalism, which is kind of the Catholic and other Orthodox churches teaching that grace is only when you uh, go through the sacraments rather than grace is free through Christ. In the Enlightenment, the church dealt with rationalism, which worshipped the mind of people rather than God. And even now, all of those things are still around today, and we have even more. We have uh, atheistic naturalism. We have all sorts of mysticism. We have all sorts of false teaching from people who say they're the church, like prosperity teaching. And there's even more. I'm not going to name everything. But we're living in dangerous times, is what I'm saying where there's all sorts of different things out there, all sorts of evildoers, people who don't love God, who who are trying to teach these evil things, who are trying to prey on the weak. And we, the church, need to know what the word says. One, so we can oppose those people. Two, so we for ourselves can know what the truth actually is. The only way that we can oppose false doctrine is if we know what sound doctrine is, right? And the only way we can spot godless living in someone is when we know what a God honor in life looks like. And we know both those things when we know the word of God. Second Timothy 17 through 19, which we went over a couple weeks ago, says, speaking of false teachers, their teaching will spread will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, right? Two false teachers who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. So you have an example in this same book of a couple of false teachers who have departed from the truth. It even says what their false teaching is. It says they say that the resurrection has already taken place, meaning that like the re- not the resurrection of Christ, that's obviously already taken place, but the resurrection of the saints where Jesus has already come back. And the result is that they have destroyed the faith of some, showing that they live in dangerous times where people's faith are being destroyed by these false teachings. But what does Paul say at the end? How does he battle that false teaching that destroys the faith, the faith of some? It says, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. He contrasts that with the word of God. Does that make sense? So we need to know the word of God, just as Paul did here. We need to know the word of God, not just have it in our houses and not just have it memorized, but know how to use it as well. Because we're in dangerous times where if, if you don't know how to, you're, you're, you know, you're at risk to be swayed by all sorts of different things, all sorts of false teachings, people who pray on the weak. And we need to have this in our hearts and we need to understand how to use it so we know how to oppose that. And so we know how to how to spot these things. If we're to make it through dangerous times as a church, we have to have the word of God and we have to know we, how to use it. 
Point two. We need God's word to follow in the footsteps of faithful believers. So in the first half of this chapter, we saw who these these sinners were and what they do. And now Paul kind of contrasts that in verse 10 by showing who he is and the life that he lived. Paul's not saying this to kind of show off or he's not saying it without a purpose. But what he's doing is he's casting Timothy's mind back to all the ways that he has seen Paul live throughout his whole life. He's reminding Timothy, look at the way that I live. Those people live that way. But I'm reminding you, look at the way I lived, how I lived a faithful, godly life. Verse 10 through 12 says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul's point to Timothy here is pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Preach the word because I, Paul, have faithfully preached the word. And then live faithfully to the Lord in your personal life. Because I, Paul, have lived faithful to the Lord. Paul was Timothy's mentor and he was instructing him, look, just as the way that I live, you are to imitate that. Just as the way that I ministered to the church, so you are to minister to the church, which Timothy was in Ephesus right now, so to the Ephesians. And the way that Timothy was to do this was with God's word. It wasn't just what Timothy thought was best. It was Timothy was to use and utilize God's word and faithfully preaching the gospel and faithfully living out a godly life. Following in the footsteps of those faithful before us is actually I talked about this uh, maybe a couple of times I, I taught ago, but it's actually a super biblical principle. It's found all over the Bible, all over the New Testament, all over the Old Testament. First Corinthians 11 one says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Philippians 3.17 says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul was telling Timothy, look at the way that I lived. And in Philippians, he writes, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Hebrews 13.7 says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Paul was nearing the end of his life when he wrote this letter. And he's urging Timothy to consider the way that he lived, to consider the way that Paul lived, and the outcome of his life. Even in the bad times where Paul was being heavily persecuted, the Lord was faithful to rescue him. So... Uh, a, a question I think that came to mind is, do I have anybody like that in my life? Anyone who's kind of set a good example for me, a godly example, a faithful believer who who kind of was a mentor, a disciple or sorts, or just someone that I could kind of uh, see throughout my walk and, and take an example from them. I remember a long time ago when I first started coming to CNC, I would look up to guys like like 
Shane and and uh, and Alex and and even Brett and Michael and the way that they live their life and kind of looking up to them and 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 looking at them as examples. I would be encouraged to read the word on a daily basis because I see those people urging us to read the word. And I, and I would, uh, and I would take an example from how they faithfully taught the word, how they stuck to scripture. And it's good for us to see people like that in our life. And I would ask you to think of someone in your life that was like that. I know, um, it doesn't seem like she's here right now, but I know Miss Angulo has been that person to some people in here. I know some of you may have godly parents who, who you've looked up to. Maybe people in your church whose faith is worth imitating. And you see that. But the point is that as Timothy is called here, and as we are called to imitate the faith of those faithful believers, we can't do that if we're not living in God's word. The reason why people before us, even the last generation, even centuries before us, were able to live Christ-centered lives is because they relied on God through his word. And if we aren't doing that, then we can't hope to follow in, the, in those same footsteps. Which, by the way, um, Christ is the ultimate example. So follow in his footsteps. But I'm just trying to show that it is very biblical to also have a mentor or someone you look up to in the faith who's who's lived a godly life and you can take after them and follow after their example. Some people I understand in the church have had like horrible mentors, horrible disciplers. Um, they've been hurt by the church, people who teach false doctrine, people who live a sinful life. And in that regard, by knowing scripture, we can know whose faith is not worth imitating, whose faith is, is, is really no faith at all. Right. Someone who would lie to you. When we read scripture, we understand what the life and the teachings of a Christian should look like. And we can examine others' lifestyles. We can examine ourselves, our own heart, and we can see who is good to imitate. Right. So just as Paul reminds Timothy, we're charged to consider faithful believers we know and consider the outcome of their life. We're to follow in the example of faith that they've set before us. But we have to stick to scripture if we're going to do that. If we hope to follow in those faithful footsteps, we have to know what the word of God says. So we've gone over how we need God's word because of terrible times. And how we need it because of those faithful believers before us. So now our third point. We need God's word because it makes us wise for salvation. Verse 13 through 14 says, While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it. So in these verses... Paul presents another kind of contrast. Verse 13, he talks about how evildoers and apostles will go from bad to worse, not only deceiving others, but they themselves being deceived. Right? But as for you, consider in what you have learned 
and have become convinced of. But as for you, continue in what you have in what you have learned and become convinced of. So he's saying just these false teachers are going to go from bad to worse, but you continue in what you have learned. And this is in this passage, this is kind of like the big exhortation that Paul gives Timothy. Continue. You've seen these people. You see what happens to them. You see who they are. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. There's two reasons why Paul gives Timothy to continue. The reason there's two reasons why Paul tells Timothy to continue. One, because you know those faithful people who taught you, and that kind of refers to our last point. But he says, Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And we know that previous in the chapter, Timothy learned a lot of his scripture from his mother and his grandmother who kind of raised him up, teaching him the scriptures. And then he had Paul as a mentor later on. So continue in what you've learned because of those whom you have learned it from. And then the second reason he tells him to continue is how from a young age he has known the scriptures. So why is it important? that Timothy was taught and knew the scriptures. How, how is that a reason there? Because the scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation in Christ. So then in that passage, there is the point that we at here at CNC, we as believers need God's word because it makes us wise through salvation. And that's a, that's a, big thing that we need to know about scripture. Why do we need scripture at all? Why do those Christians cling so tightly to the Bibles? Because it makes us wise for salvation. Because it reveals to us the truth that God has sent his son to redeem sinners. Right? It, 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 it shows us that truth. It's like we were blinded and, and then we see this and God reveals his word to us. And we have become wise for salvation. The word is able to do that. And just like Timothy, we have a calling to continue in what we've learned. If we have learned the gospel and if we have put our faith in Christ, if we, if we strive to live godly lives, we have a calling to continue in that, continue in what we have learned. And we need to persist in that no matter what happens in the culture around us, no matter what happens in the, in the world no matter even the people close to you. We need to persist. We need to continue in what we have learned. So the scripture makes us wise for salvation. What sort of implications does that bring if the scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation? One, it means that we and everyone else can know of God's plan for salvation. It means that God not only has made a way for us to be saved, but he's made a way for us to know that we can be saved. When each one of us, if we have, put our faith in Christ, it wasn't because of a smooth-talking teacher. It wasn't because of, of, you know, because someone was really good at presenting the gospel. It wasn't because there was a really emotional sermon one time, right? It was because someone presented the word of God. It's because by his word, God has opened your eyes to see the truth of his son. So it implies that we can know of God's plan for salvation. Two, it implies that the scriptures are the authority on the true gospel and sound doctrine. So this is the authority. The authority is not, again, 
any teacher who is or is not a biblical teacher. They are not the authority. The authority on the gospel and on God's plan for salvation is the word of God. So anytime anyone says anything about God, anytime they claim something about God, we can go to this and we can compare it to whatever they said. Like the Bereans, they, they, they look through the scriptures to see if what Paul said was so. We can do that because we know that the Bible is the authority. And then the third implication is it means that it is the most effective evangelism tool that we can possess. If this is what makes us wise to salvation and makes others wise to salvation, then we don't need some really cool Bible tracts. We don't need some really great plan to go evangelize. What we need is the word of God. Through his word, God is able to open people's eyes. It is able to make us and others wise for salvation. And likewise, just as I said, we don't try to persuade people to come to Christ through smooth words and fancy new presentations. We do it by presenting the word of God and explaining what it means. So we live in, they live back then, we live in now a wicked and sinful generation. And there's very little in this world that we can trust in. There's very little that we can take as, as absolute truth. But we can trust who God is and what he says through his word. So we need God's word because of terrible times. We need God's word to follow faithful footsteps. And we need God's word to be wise for salvation. And our fourth and final point is this. We need God's word because it is useful to equip us for godly living. We're going to read verses 16 through 17, which are our memory verses, so memorize it. Verse 16 through 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Paul here is reminding Timothy of the nature of what the Bible is, of what God's word is. It comes from God. It is inspired by God. It's not just things that people wrote that they thought about who God is. This is God telling us who he is. To this, so that's, so that's, it being breathed out by God. That's part of the nature of God's word too. It is useful. This isn't just some valuable thing. Like if, if Michael Jordan signed a basketball for you, it's not very useful other than kind of like putting on a display case and having it in your house so you can show people, right? And I mean, God is way more famous than Michael Jordan. And this is his word, but this is not meant to be put up on some sort of like display case where others can see it and like, whoa, you have God's word? It's meant to be used, right? It's meant for us to understand it and, and utilize in our life. And then talks about so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what for what purpose has God made his word useful? So that all his servants may be well equipped to go and serve him. It's useful to teach us. It's useful for us to teach. It's useful to rebuke us if we need it. It's useful to rebuke others if we need it. It's useful to correct us. Sometimes we need correcting. It's useful to correct others. 
if they need it. And it's useful, and we all need this, it's useful to train us in righteousness. Right? And so in it being useful for these things, we can use it so that we would be equipped to go and serve God. God uses his word to sanctify us. I hear a lot of people are always like, wash us by your word, which is a good prayer. Um, but God uses his word to sanctify us, to make us more in the image of Christ. When we apply it, right, we can't just hear it and then walk away from it like we never heard it. When we hear it and know it and apply it to our lives, we will become useful vessels for his kingdom. And utilizing the word of God was, was super essential in Timothy's life, just like it's in our life. But Timothy, especially because he had a heavy ministry calling to minister to the Ephesians, to oversee the church in Ephesus, in which there was a lot going on. There were people gossiping. Widows weren't being provided for. And some of the ones that were being provided for shouldn't have been because they were kind of taking advantage of things. There were false teachers that needed to be opposed. All this. And Timothy was just kind of a young guy and he was kind of thrown into it. And now Paul is soon to leave. Paul's going to die soon. And he's urging Timothy. And he's reminding him about how useful the scriptures are in his ministry. And we here may not be called to go pastor um, and oversee a, the church in Ephesus or in any other city. But we all have a ministry in our lives. We all have a sphere of influence. We all have people around us, whether they're Christian or not Christian. We all have ministry and we all have a calling to love God, to love our neighbors, to preach the gospel and to continue in what we have learned. And we can't do any of those things if we don't use the tools that God has given us. It would be like if, if someone asked me to go fix their car and they, they didn't give me the proper tools. It doesn't make any sense. Like, how am I supposed to do this? But God doesn't say, hey, go serve me, but I'm not going to give you anything. I'm not going to give you tools. He's given us his word. So we need God's word because it's useful for equipping us to do God's work. Which, by the way, I want to kind of emphasize this. It's not just when we serve God, it's not just some sort of religious routine that we go do it. And it's like, oh, it's because we're called to do it and we have to go do it. But it should be a labor of love that we get to do this. God first loved us, and so we love him. And now our desire is to serve him so that he would receive glory, so that other people may come to know him and know how good he is. And when we, when we spend time in God's word, when we know it, when we apply it to our lives, then we become better. And God is more able to use us as a vessel to go and glorify him, which should be as Christians, a great desire of ours, it should be the, the whole point of our lives to glorify God. And when we read the Bible, when we know it, then we're more able to do that. So the word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that, insert your name here, Jordan, whatever your name is, so that Jordan may be equipped for every good work. It is useful. It is useful to us so that we may be equipped to go serve God. 
So, four reasons Paul laid out why we need God's word. Because of terrible times, we're living in them. In dangerous times where the church is at risk. And we need the Bible to persevere in sound doctrine and in godly living through them. Because of faithful saints, those who have come before us, who have lived godly lives, who have ran the race with endurance. Right? We need the Bible if we're to follow in their footsteps. To be wise into salvation, if we're to know the gospel, if we're to, to know that, that, that Jesus saved us by grace alone, if we're to know the, the truth about all things surrounding the gospel and sound doctrine in general, we need the Bible. And if we are to be equipped for godly living, again, we need God's word. So these aren't even all encompassing. These are just four reasons why we as a church need God's word. So we see that the scripture is essential to our sanctification as God's people, to how he shapes us in the image of his son and how he works throughout the whole church, throughout the whole world, not just here at CNC. But God's word is also essential to every believer in, in developing a personal relationship with him, right? God doesn't just view us as, as a whole church, but he also sees us um, as individuals who, and, and we're to, by his word, know him and grow in relationship with him. So the application is, is kind of simple. Ask yourself, do I treat God's word as though it's absolutely essential to my life? Which is a pretty convicting question for me to answer, for me to, to consider. Or do I treat it as though it's just an add-on to everything else I'm consuming in life? The Bible should be the, the main thing that we consume. Sean always says this quote, but he says, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. We as Christians should be living in the Bible because we need it. And not only do we need it, it's good. If you go read Psalm 119, you'll see all these things about how the Bible is related to treasure. It's better than gold and silver, right? It's not just something we need. It's not like medicine that's like, oh, I need it, but but it kind of it's kind of hard to take. No, the Bible is good. It is the, the greatest material possession anyone can have anywhere on earth. It's greater than than all the money in the world. It's greater than all the nicest cars you could ever have. And it's essential to each one of our lives. So the application here is I want to encourage each of you to make it a, a, a daily habit to just even consider for, for a minute. Why do we need God's word? And then let that drive you to go to his word, to spend time with him in his word, to, to live in the Bible. And you can start even with one day. I know it's hard sometimes because we'll be really ambitious and we'll say, I'm going to read the Bible every day for a whole year. And then we mess up on one day, like in three days. And then we're like, oh, man, I, I messed up. But I want to encourage you guys just tomorrow, start with one day. And, and if you struggle with the habit of getting in his word, then just take a minute to consider, why do I need God's word? And then let that drive you to get into his word, even for a short time. Build, build up your habits. Just start with one day and then, and then continue that to the next day and to the next day and to the next day. So uh, one of the things that we're trying to do more 
is uh, the teaching team is at the end of each one of our messages is we want to present kind of a challenge to you guys. So my challenge to you is each morning, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, right? Especially we need God's word on Mondays because Mondays are kind of hard, right? And it's really easy to have a poor attitude on, on Mondays. Tomorrow morning and each morning after that, just identify to yourself one biblical reason why you need God's word. It could be because I need to find joy in God, because I need strength to get through this day. It could be because I'm going through dangerous times where I'm being tempted every which way and I need God's word to sustain me. Whatever that looks like in your life, identify one biblical reason why you need God's word and then write it down on a, a notebook. It legitimately takes you like five seconds to write that down. It doesn't take a long time, but it can go a long way. Write that down and then let that spur you on to spending some time in the Bible. Okay. So we need God's word as a church and as individuals. And I hope that we can take this example that, that Paul was exhorting Timothy to continue in what he has learned. And we could take that into our own lives to continue in what we have learned and to know that God's word is very, very useful and very, very essential to our lives. You can listen. Listening to the Bible can be very useful. Um, I would say that it depends on where your heart is at when you're doing that. Um, so if you're only listening to the Bible because you don't want to sit down and, and give God that attention, right? Like if you're just doing dishes and, and you're like, I'll listen to the Bible now so I don't have to really sit down and pay attention, I would I would encourage you to actually have a time where you sit down and really read and kind of give, give God all your attention in that moment, even if it's just for five minutes. Just kind of shut everything else out, right? Um, that's fine. Okay. If you, if you can't, then listening to the Bible is excellent. And that's a really cool resource that we have to be able to listen to the Bible. Um, but again, it's just about your heart. As long as you sit down and you really just bow your heart to the Lord and say, this is your time. Teach me through your word. Um, then listening is, is awesome. Um, so cool. That's all we have for our teaching tonight. Um, oh, we don't have Bible trivia tonight. Cool. No Bible trivia. So I'm going to pray us out, and then we're going to get into a time of musically worshiping the Lord. And then we'll be dismissed. Cool. So if you'd like to join me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... for your grace that you've shown us in sending your son, Jesus, to, to die to pay for our sin. Just as these things were written about these sinners who, who, who did not love God, who were lovers of pleasure. Lord, these things were formerly us. Lord, but you sent your son to die and to pay for those sins that we've committed. And he's taken on our punishment and you've clothed us in his righteousness. So that one day when we stand before you, you see your son and our place and you see us as, as cleansed from sin, washed by his blood. And we're so thankful that you have 
saved us, that you have sent your son, that you have made known this wonderful truth through the through your word. I praise you that we can know it. I pray that we would revere you through your word and that you would encourage us every day to, to go to your word and to read it and understand it and apply it to our lives, to utilize it, that we may be equipped for every good work. Equip us, Lord, so that we may serve you well, so that we may be more useful vessels for your glory. We love you, God. We, we seek to glorify you in everything we do. And may that be the ultimate desire of our hearts. We look to you and, and, and we just thank you once again for your saving grace. It's in your son's name and for his glory that we ask all of this. Amen.